With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. You're listening to The Noble and Bruce Show, brought to you by Ball is Life and Dash Radio. Welcome to another episode of The Noble and Roosh Show presented by Ball is Life. I'm your host, Roosh Williams, with my co-host, Zach Noble. And today we have a special guest in the building, Henry Abbott with True Hoop. Henry, how you doing? Great. How are you? Doing well, man. Uh, Cyber Monday. You know, Thanksgiving weekend was fun. I was in Santa Barbara, so that was nice. Oh, it's um, beautiful in Santa Barbara, huh? Be, beyond, beyond. It's so Just beautiful be- there. Yeah. Views and views, great food, great drinks. It was amazing. Uh, what did you, you know, how was your Thanksgiving? It was, you know, it was a lot of being around here. We did have, we're kind of in a pod with one other family and we had a blast with them, but um, it wasn't Santa Barbara, man. I'll tell you that. <laughs> right, you tell me. <laughs> I, I was in Kansas. Uh, definitely yeah. wasn't Santa Barbara either, but. There you gets- go. Yeah, I mean, I was, I was walking to the beach uh, pretty much every day, just hanging, sunny, chilly. It was, it was honestly perfect. Um, I'm from Houston for full disclosure, Henry. So usually I'd be in Houston for the holidays, but, yeah, you know, with COVID. We decided to just kind of stay local. So we took a little staycation type trip. So a lot of fun. That's one of the only places that makes me feel like I basically feel like every place is about the same, but Santa Barbara, I'm like, oh, we just leave uglier, less fragrant lives. Yeah. Santa Barbara. <laughs> like everything's just better there. <laughs> it is a literal slice of paradise. I hate to it like, is. you know, over apply that term, but it is, I mean, it's absolutely beautiful. If I could retire out there one day, oh. pencil that in. You know? Absolutely. Yeah. It could happen. But yeah. So Henry, how are things going with you, man? I, I've recognized your work that you used to do with David Thorpe with True Hoop TV and the True Hoop yeah. Network. I don't know if you know Rahat Huck of sure. Red 94. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I'm, you know. He's a doctor really, now, right? Uh, he's a lawyer. He's a, he's a lawyer. lawyer. He's a lawyer, right? Lawyer, right. Yes. Doctor, he's a lawyer. lawyer. It's all the same, you know. right? <laughs> Especially when you're, when you're from a Brown family, you're just one, you're, you're born to be one of, one of the two, right? But uh so that's my guy. I'm, I'm really active on Rockets Twitter. And I know that Red94 was the Houston affiliate for that. But yeah, man, um, tell us about what you got going on these days and what you're up to. And, you know, so we have pretty big ambitions. If you are looking for a good time, let me tell you, raise money for a media startup in a pandemic. Like that's exciting. <laughs> <laughs> so fingers crossed. I've been saying this for a while, but like uh, fingers crossed, we get to do some big, exciting things. Um, it's a new media company, right? So at ESPN, I got to, I was there for a decade. Um, and the last few years I was a manager and really got to kind of see with data what works. Um, and most of what I knew about media was wrong. Like most of like, I don't know, let's say maybe it'd be exciting to get a sit down interview with Eric Bledsoe, right? I'm, I'm here to tell you, I love me some Eric Bledsoe, but nobody's reading that story. Like it's just not how <laughs> audiences behave. So we had to kind of rethink what we did. And this Troop Presents team was like one of my proudest accomplishments of my life was a bunch of feature stories really based on what evidence suggests audiences do like. What we found was 
if you are very, very careful about which stories you choose, you can get giant audiences for NBA stories, way bigger than the number of NBA fans. And if you think about it, we all watch Netflix shows or movies that are about, you know, well, there's a chess series that's very popular right now, but we're not chess fans, right? Like um, we're watching the Queen's Gambit, same kind of idea. Um, so we sort of focused on these stories that have dramatic elements of storytelling, traditional storytelling, like sitting around the fire storytelling. And we slaughtered all the traffic records, just murdered them. So now I want to try that with sort of a fancy podcast and narratives that have potential to become movies. Um, so behind the scenes, working away on that. Um, what we do have now already existent is, um, well, everybody has these days. It's the cool thing to have is a Substack newsletter with David Thorpe and some other contributors and super proud of that. Uh, David sees basketball uh, with a lucidity that I don't know anyone else who does that, right? Um, he's the one who watches video and says, I don't see what the big deal is with Lamella Ball and writes that the Warriors should only consider James Weissman. And then we learn two months after David published that, that, that Steve Kerr was thinking exactly the same way all the way through as was most of Warriors brass. So we have that kind of insight. And then I like to go on weird tangents about billionaire owners. That's my kind of my thing these days is uh, <laughs> people with ties to Jeffrey Epstein and money laundering yes, and, all kind, and you know mafia. There's all kinds of craziness with NBA's billionaires. So that's, that's my beat. So just a regular NBA site. So it sounds like um, this is the media equivalent of analytics, right? You, you're taking the, the feel away from the game and you went numbers. I'm, I'm just just kidding. I'm a no, it's fan. a great, no, it's, that's exactly like, I feel like in the way it took us the exact opposite way is actually about love, right? Like emotions. Yeah. And that's actually, you know, the, the notion that the, the baseline assumption of sports media is people are just seeking information. It's like, Oh, we got to give them this Knicks update. Cause they're just dying for a Knicks update. It's like, they're not, not a lot of people anyway, like not a lot of people follow just seeking information. What they're dying for is to be delighted. Right. And if you give them that, then you, you might get something special going on. So when you have, you mentioned like an Eric Bledsoe piece is not going to, you know, draw millions of eyeballs, for example. What type of, uh, you know, storytelling or story with traditional storytelling elements did you find would actually attract the audiences that you were looking for? Um, how much time do you have? <laughs> it's a, pan- it's, it's a one day in a pandemic, man. I'm chilling. <laughs> so... Um, a lot of the people, so the writers that I was working with on this team were like, you know, Jackie McMullen, Tom Haberstrow, Kevin Arnovitz, uh, Baxter Holmes. Um, they would tell you that I would get very excited about mystery. Um, that's a key one. Uh, so basically you read paragraphs one through four and there's something you just have to know, right? So it's really about story construction. Um, I didn't really, uh, or, or emotional transitions is another big one. Um, so the most read story um, that this team ever had, which was for a time the most read story in ESPN.com history, was Ethan Sherwood Strauss's story about Steph Curry's shoe deal gone awry. I do remember that one. You know, that was like like five thousand times the normal ESPN audience, something like that. Um, and uh, Ethan would tell you that I was just being annoying that he pitched it a year before, and I spent a year like not moving it along. Um, I would tell you that one of the things that really moves the story is are, are narrating emotional transitions. This is stuff that's in every like Hollywood script writing book. So basically if a scene starts sad, it ends up happy, but someone has to talk you through the emotions of that. Otherwise it doesn't really work. And um, that story got greenlit when Steph Curry's dad, Del Curry agreed on the record to like narrate this meeting where Steph Curry was expecting to resign with Nike and they were pitching him to resign with Nike. And the meeting went so badly that he decided never to sign with Nike. And, 
that was the transition we had to go through. And finally, Dell on the record agreed to like narrate it for us. I think that is why, I mean, people love sneakers and people love stuff. And there's a lot of things that would be going on there. But I think the key thing is that you finished reading that story and felt like you'd been moved on a certain kind of journey. And that feeling, which might be hard for you to describe, made you tell your mom about it or a friend about it or someone else about it. And it's that these stories that have a huge audience, they get a big audience on day one, but they get a bigger audience on day two and still big audience on day three and day four. Um, That's because people felt a certain way at the time they finished reading it or listening to it or watching it. Everything you just described there and the people you mentioned that are joining you on this journey, uh, like you mentioned the best storytellers at ESPN in my estimation. I mean, Baxter Holmes, uh, we had him on last year on my other show talking about his wine story and then talking yeah. about the roots um, of in North Carolina, Brandon, Brandon Ingram. Oh, and uh, North Carolina. You got it. Yeah, yeah. Those are two of the top stories that have hit home with me. Um, and just they drive emotions like what you're trying to purvey here. So it's pretty cool. And Jackie McMullen, I mean, the graphic novel she can tell, I mean, pretty awesome. Mm-hmm. I mean, she, yeah, she's got as good a memory as anybody. But no, I, I love the idea and I hope it, it continues to be successful for you guys. Um, remind us again, though, you got me <clears throat> perking up about the Steph Curry story. What was it at Nike that um, turned him away from Nike again? Do you remember? It's just a silly, it's, we've all been on these Zoom meetings all the time now, right? Sometimes it goes awry. Like they showed him, um, or in the lead up to the meeting, he said that one of the most important things he wanted from Nike was a camp, a named camp, because he had been so moved by being in Chris Paul camp as as a young camper. And literally, literally, I'm paraphrasing, but it was roughly like, well, no, we're saving that for the top tier guys. <laughs> so he didn't get a camp. So that was, that was not good. Then they, um, you know, reportedly showed a PowerPoint called Kevin Durant dot PPT, which is like, cause they like repurposed oh my God. The, the PowerPoint. And then, uh, and then, you know, Stephen Curry has had confusion about his name his whole life. Right. Right. Like, but he had like relatives who worked for Nike. He just felt like family with people who were in the meeting, but they called him Stefan several times. Um, Stefan, also a basketball name, just not his name. Right. And, um, <laughs> and his dad was like, you know, I wasn't surprised that it happened, but I was surprised I didn't get a correction. So yeah, I think those were the big ones. I mean, it, it sounds good. like based on that story and based on your overall description, um, that you just gave of, you know, what may have drawn more eyeballs to the Steph Curry story in general, there's just a human element to things that I think mm-hmm. often get overlooked. Right. And a lot of times we get tunnel visioned on, I don't know, stats, numbers, dollar sign they signed for, whatever it is. But at the end of the day, it seems like when things kind of go awry or they crumble, there's a human element that was glossed over, that was overlooked. So it's nice and interesting uh, to see that you're, you know, you're trying to capture the human element. And to that effect, I wanted to bring up, um, I, I read your piece titled uh, Exceptional Ruthless about... Oh, wow, yeah. David Stern. Um, and I thought it was, I mean, I really enjoyed it. And I really liked how you started out, you know, talking about that you were sad that he passed away. And I have like a, a rule, right? Like if someone passes away, it's really hard for me to speak negatively about them. Just out of, it's like a weird thing I have. So you started that way and then you got real, right? And a lot of times people, you know, we, we glorify figures, especially when they pass away or when they leave office, right? We kind of tell a different tale years down the line for whatever reason uh, we gloss over like the ugliness of it but you ripped ripped the ugliness right out from the seams um and i was just wondering if you could kind of expand on that piece and and, and kind of what david stern meant to the league and then some of the under 
uh, you know, the themes underlying that, that, that you talk about in your piece. Yeah, this is a weird one. So David Stern and I were, you know, we weren't like best friends or anything, but we talked a lot. He definitely followed what I was doing and would give me guff for it all the time. And we had some, some back and forths and it actually, I felt a little bit like people use the term father figure, but my actually, my relationship with David was a little bit like my relationship with my actual dad, uh-huh. where, where I, um, you know, I had plenty to argue with, but you know, kind of loved the dude. Right. <laughs> and then he died. And I thought, well, there's so many great writers who know him better than I did. And I'm just going to sit this one out. I'm going to let everybody, we don't need a 14th or 17th remembrance of Davis Stern. Um, and then I read like for the first 24 hours or so, these visions of Davis Stern that just weren't the man I recognized. Um, he was absolutely a genius and he was absolutely exceptional and he absolutely defined the league but the tools that he used weren't the tools of being like decent and kind and a disney character and sunny like he he fought dirty you know like and and that that worked for the league um and there's still a big hangover of that now i don't really need him to be like you know maligned for that i just think we need to be honest about the world we live in where that's what it took to do what he did um and i had some personal experiences that i put in a story about just you know what he was up to but um but yeah that's a it, it's not a tidy job um and and he didn't do it in a tidy way well See, sorry real quick zach i just wanted to say to kind of plug the theme again he's human right and you yeah. and you highlighted that he's human and a lot of business uh, and you know dealings that happen behind the scenes, especially when you're profitable and as big as the NBA is, and as big as he grew it to be, it requires being human. So it's it's really interesting to read, Zach. So what what do you mean by hangover that's leaving this cloud over the league today? Because I feel like most of the stuff he did is for the better, um, and then he cleaned the house of some of the coldest. I mean, most disgusting. To sit- despicable humans that were hanging around the NBA that you mentioned in the piece, like Mikhail Prokhorov, Donald Sterling, Jeffrey Epstein, Harvey Weinstein, those guys hanging around the NBA. And I feel like you're, you're explaining that David Stern enabled those billionaire types, but the only guy I can think about that's still around would be James Dolan. That's around that crew. But uh, what, what is this cloud you speak of? So one of the people I quoted in a story was like, uh, this was like late at night. Um, you know, the, I'm sure you guys have been to the like free booze fest during the finals, right? Like in uh, what do they call it? Media, media tents and whatnot. Media hospitality, right? Media hospitality can ruin your life. <laughs> like, you gotta be careful <laughs> with media hospitality. But um, but uh, I believe it was at media hospitality when a guy who was like a a, a mainstay, a, a top executive of the NBA for a long time, very. Cl- close to stern um had had a few and just was like i wait are we, are we allowed to curse on this show oh yeah fuck it. okay so uh, he was like i fucking hate billionaires and then that starts just like an interesting glimpse into what the league does right the league has a lot of different jobs but at the very core of it they're employees of the board of governors who are 30 billionaires and everything else is secondary to that right this is why you don't see adam silver like he can't say one bad thing about Donald Trump. Like that's a little weird, right? Um, <laughs> uh, like why would that be, right? And and um, you know, then I mean, this is now bringing it up to date. But uh, 
you know, when there were like YouTube is full of the NYPD swinging batons at BLM protesters, right? And just doing terribly rough things. They have $50 billion pension fund that's invested. And the companies that invest it are largely the companies that make NBA owners rich, right? Like these same investment firms are managing this. Like they're literally being courted by the heads of the unions who are like super crazy right-wing QAnon uh, Trump supporters, the NBA owners have to kiss up to them to get work, right? There's Adam Silver um, giving speeches uh, with his college roommate um, at a sort of fundraiser for NYPD support charity kind of thing. Um, and on and on. But like, you know, it's it, there's a little bit of uh, you have to do some pretty terrible things um, to keep billionaires happy because <laughs> um, they want what they want and they almost convenient for them and they don't really care how it looks. And it's that's the, the job line. of being in the gotcha. NBA. That makes sense. So my second part of that question would be, is James Dolan still the only one of that type of billionaire around in the NBA? Or who would you like to call out besides that in that estimation? Oh, um, is he even a billionaire? I think he's days? just cheap, man. I don't yeah. think he's that necessarily noted bad guy, but. Oh, well, I can't totally agree with you there, Zach. So, okay, so. There's a true post called Fertitta Family History, which is really born of the fact that like a guy who um, works in the league said to me casually, like, I mean, why would they approve a, a guy from a fourth? Gen- I forget the exact quote. It's in like four generations of mafia. Why would they approve that guy in the NBA? I'm like, what? That seems like a crazy thing. Do go, let's go look. It's not even like this isn't like supposition. Like this is like. There are books, movies, like if you just go read Texas Monthly Magazine from through the years, like, like, like Galveston, Texas is this, you know, crazy. It's like the Atlantic City of the South, the Vegas of the South kind of thing. Um, that's where the I, I would, from. I would, I would pause you before you give it half as much credit as calling it Vegas anything. Okay. But it is, it is. <laughs> For, for Zach, for reference, it's like 45 minutes, hour outside of Houston. It's like this little town oh, no, Galveston. where there's. You know Galveston? Oh yeah, I know my geography. Okay. That's one one of my strengths. Okay, all right. Well, I am I am geographically poor, but Henry, continue because this is wildly interesting. That the Fertitta family is a uh, it's a whole deal. Very interesting. It's yeah. a whole deal. I would rather like on advice of counsel. I prefer you read the stuff that we very carefully wrote rather than I speak <laughs> extemporaneously about it. But like, but yeah, there's all sorts of like gambling, other sort of stuff in that family. Pretty big on. Uh, Drexel Burnham Lambert was like one of the Michael Milken, um, a tremendous percentage of NBA owners sort of emerged from this disgraced firm. They were like the junk bond kings, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, I don't know that I could really explain exactly how this all works. But the people who came from Drexel and now are around the NBA um, have gone on to have a lot of creepy ties. So most importantly, when, Drek- when Michael Milken went to prison, um, one of his key deputies was this guy named Leon Black. Um, and most of the Drex people had a hard time raising money for their next big project. But Leon Black got a call from a French bank, which offered him $400 million to start his new project, which was kind of a weird call. The French bank at that time was loaning money to known mobsters right and left and uh, went out of business. Eventually, French taxpayers had to bail it out for 17 billion euros. Um, when there were trials about all this, the guy running the bank ended up in prison and the bank's headquarters where all the records were was coincidentally lit on fire before all the evidence could be presented to the judge about what happened there. Anyway, 
That's the money that started what's now called Apollo Global Management. Apollo Global Management is what Leon Black started with some friends from Drexel. Two of those, one of those friends owns the Sixers now, and one of them owns the Hawks now. They've invested with what the Hawks uh, billionaire owner, uh, Tony Ressler, and his brother have both invested with Trump um, and Felix Sater and Bayrock and all these people who are getting in trouble now. Actually, I saw that there's a Felix Sater money laundering lawsuit movement today. Um, so <laughs> I don't know how these deals work exactly. I'm a sports journalist, but um, I can tell you that um, Leon Black has been like the New York Times reporting that the attorney general of the U.S. Virgin Islands is going to subpoena him because he gave about 50 or maybe $75 million to Jeffrey Epstein. Seems kind of creepy to me. You know what I'm saying? I don't know. Could have been to a good cause. Maybe uh, Epstein's uh, charity somewhere. That's what they said. <laughs> yeah, that was the story. I thought the NBA is working on more of a vetting process, though, with ownership. I thought they have tightened the screws a little bit, and that's why they got rid of Mikhail Prokhorov. And um, I thought there is a whole vetting process now that's really prominent or is it just still super loose you're saying can i just add that again and i I hate to be the houston bias guy but tillman fertitta passed their vetting process the things we discussed aside (laughs) the things we discussed aside i don't think he was financially in in a stable or sound enough position you know to be approved for that and i think that you know you've seen a lot of pressure put on him by rockets fans and, and just a lot of people making fun of him in general um, for how he's managing the Rockets and, you know, ducking the luxury tax and all that. So, like, yeah, I'd love to hear the answer to this question. I mean, there, if there is a vetting process, how did someone like him, even on a financial perspective, get through? Yeah, he had to finance almost all the purchase, which he did with his longtime business partner, who that formerly worked at right. Drexel Burnham Lambert and is the head. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a little bit of a mess. He didn't even have the highest bid. So, no. That's wild. Riddle me that. Why would you pick this guy? And there's a whole, actually, I have half a story written. Maybe it will come down the road about what went on there. But, uh, but yeah, so Leslie Alexander sold to um, not the highest bidder who didn't even have the money that he bid. Do you know what he was outbid by? How much? Was it significant? Well, so some of these things are a little tricky, like how some of these things are hard to value. Um, he bid $2.2 billion as reported. Mm-hmm. And I think that some of the bids were potentially valid as high as three. But, of course, you, would, you could That's argue big. they were actually had a hard cash value that was lower. Again, I'm a sports journalist, but the story was that they could have been oh, a lot more. What it's all about. I mean, this is what we want to hear from True Hoop. <laughs> right? I mean, it, it's interesting, man. I mean, fans care so much about, and this, I kind of want to use this as a segue. Fans care so much about the product, right? I mean, I'm a basketball. Trickles down. Right? I'm a basketball head. I love the game. Whatever David Stern packaged and sold me in the 90s when I was a kid. It worked. Stuck. It's stuck, right? Be like Mike, it's stuck. And I'm a lifer. And then you, you start to kind of see through the cracks and how ugly it is. And, and it, it kind of shakes your faith in the foundation of what it is, you know, on a, from, a, from a moral perspective, like we're discussing now, uh, from a financial perspective, which ties into the moral perspective. And then if you want to get, if you want to bring the moral perspective actually down to the game on the court, one of the worst things I think that's happened in sports that you also touched on in the article that that I brought up, Tim Donaghy scam. It's really hard for fans to have faith in the sport when you know that there's cheating going on, right? And again, why would that happen? Because they're humans, right? Humans are not flawless. Just because you hold a position and a title doesn't mean you're going to honor that that title the way that you should. And then even as you transition from Stern to Silver, I'm a Rockets fan. Why is Scott Foster in the league still, right? He had ties to Tim Donaghy. I mean, like he was one of the main guys from what I understand. Maybe I'm wrong about that. Please correct me if I am. And then you see he continues to get, it's just so mysterious. You know, like as soon as a big market team, as soon as the the KD Warriors trying to repeat 
need a crew chief in game seven. It just so happens to be Scott Foster for some fancy reason. And, you know, the Rockets just so happen to have a bunch of calls that don't go their way. I forget that there was a game that happened recently, but you knew hey, that over 27 wasn't some flu. They over, they, they, look, though, Harden <laughs> hit a three. Harden, Harden hit a three. He got fouled on the three. By all standards, it would have counted. The crew chief of that referee crew did not give him the three. So that, like, it, little things like that, right? The over 27 would have never happened if he got that bank shot three from deep when he made it. But I guess my point is, what have you kind of seen in your research? What have you uncovered? How do uh, how are fans supposed to, or even the, the, the league, supposed to reconcile this and supposed to move forward with faith? And I'll give you another example. Game seven, Rockets Thunder, this this uh, most past season, or this most past playoffs, who was the crew chief? Scott Foster. And Scott Foster has a beef with the Rockets and Chris Paul. It's like, why would you even inject such a, you know, a controversial figure whose objectivity could, you know, very well should and probably is stained? specifically with respect to those players in those games, like uh, why is he getting those, those games, those calls? How does that happen? How do we reconcile that? Well, it's not well discussed or reported on, right? Um, one of the ways that you can sort of keep an eye on what's happening with these things is with the just tracking what happens on the court. So with players, we do a great job with, you know, we know how many shots they missed, how many minutes they played, how the team did well while they were on the court. With the referees, you can't believe the efforts that the NBA has gone to to keep all of that stuff secret. Like now it's super tracked. Now they have to go to trouble the other way to make sure we don't have it. But like I've seen so many examples through the years of ways that you could keep an eye on refs. Fans could that like just they disallow it or it evaporates. For a while there was like going to be a thing. Um, well, certainly it was discussed behind the scenes where each one of us could make our own highlight reel of an NBA game or the season or whatever, which of course would be a home run, right? It'd be super great. But if you give fans the ability to slice and dice highlight reels of games together, you can do highlight reels of Scott Foster <laughs> or whatever it is, right? <laughs> I'm telling you, there's a machine. Like there, there's this thing with like a, with a bunch of arms, looks like an octopus, a robot that digitizes like all the tape of every NBA game in history. And it was like spinning for years to make this product where you're going to have all the NBA digital archives to do with, to monetize however the league saw fit. They just haven't done it. Like um, there are other examples, you know, at, at, um, Second Spectrum has cameras in the ceiling of every NBA arena. As every player moves all over the court, they have incredible data of exactly what's happening on the court, more than you could ever imagine about like, if there's a defender closing at this rate and this player's in this spot, like what's the likelihood that they'll make the shot? Well, what if the defender is an inch taller? What about two inches taller? All this stuff, right? Um, There's ref data in there, not in anything they've ever shared with the media, right? Right. It's like- Everything else is transparent. Referees should be more transparent. Absolutely. Uh, Thank you, Zach. It's wild. And held accountable. Like, I mean, we have the, you know, the social justice initiatives. And why does that happen? Because you have someone who holds an office or a position, not an office, but a position as an officer, and they're held to standards. And when they violate those standards, even when we can all see it violated on camera with our own two eyes, they're not held accountable. And I think that's what ultimately pisses people off at the end of the day is, look, everyone's human, right? They're going to make mistakes. They're going to do bad things even but they need to be held accountable. And as long as people get that accountability piece, I think it gives them peace, you know, and it kind of gives them the ability to eventually get over it and reconcile with that. But we don't see that in the NBA. There's no accountability. We don't see that. I don't, I don't think with officials anywhere in any sport, but you know, we're talking about basketball, right? Like if I did my job, if I made as many mistakes at my job as <laughs> some of these referees do, I would get booted son i'd get booted and these guys are you know they have tenure and all that so it's just wild can you kind of speak more to what that machine is or what it does how it operates yeah i mean so 
no one's demanded that it work otherwise, right? We basically only like, oh, Davis Stern's a good guy. Adam Silver's a good guy. The league does a great job. Um, so we'll just let them do that. And then, you know, the Donaghy thing really put a fine point on to me where, you know, that was, um, it, it, there was strong evidence that he fixed games. And a bunch of people have been strongly on the record that he did. And he hasn't sued them like he could, right? That would be libelous. And, I, you know, I know Tim Donaghy. Uh, I covered the hell out of that story. I went a lot of, uh, I was even involved in some of the, like he named me like this was like, I've never encountered someone who lies as much as that guy. Like he is so full of crap. Um, Unreal. I went into it please. thinking that he was going to be like, here's what happened. Now I'm just telling a story, which is sort of relevant to your question, but uh, <laughs> he wrote a book. Uh, Tim Donaghy wrote a book and um, my colleague, Kevin Arnovitz uh, got an advanced copy of it months before it came out. And so here's this tell all about like dirty stuff among referees. And it's just his word against the world. So we thought we would like, really do some hard work to figure out. So instance, he says like, you know, this ref, like Allen Iverson never loses a game with this referee or and on and on. He, he outlined a bunch of like betting strategies. And so there are people with databases. You can check this again. So we went to academics, four different places, four different databases and checked his claims, expecting that we would be buttressing them. We thought we'd be like, wow, look, NBA, he's really blowing the whistle on you. Right. But instead, by the time um, he was ready to talk and the book came out, we knew that it was all made up like oh my god like this is not how he bet like you literally oh, none no. of the betting the best betting strategies he outlined that we could track um would have gotten you way worse if you just bet randomly so meanwhile we know because he told us he had rolls of cash right in his in shoe boxes hidden all over his house because he's making so much <laughs> money from his bets well it wasn't from these strategies i guarantee you that because they were total <laughs> dogs like so so what was he doing? It's like, well, you know, there were four conspirators. And by the time I was covering this, three of them had spoken, like in books or what, to me, whatever. And um, three of them said, yeah, he was fixing games. And then the one left saying that he didn't was Tim Donaghy, who would go back to prison if it was found that he did fix games. And then uh, so at some point, I ended up asking Stern in a press conference, like, hey, so three of the four conspirators say he did fix games. The NBA is left with Tim Donaghy saying he didn't like on what basis do you say that? And then Stern just ripped me a new one. (laughs) (laughs) He ripped me a new one from the podium. And then that night when he was walking out, he did the nanny, nanny, foo, foo hand gesture to me, which is a a special moment. I'll never forget. Let's see it. What what does that look like? (laughs) (laughs) Wow. We got to get that David Stern on tape. You've been listening to Henry Abbott of True Who speak to Noble and Roosh. Brought to you by Ball is Life and Dash Radio. All right, so just wrapping up that article, um, Henry, there's one more um, I want to touch on before we let you leave, and that's uh, the Under LeBron Skin, the five part series on LeBron James as a teammate. Really enjoyed that one as well. Just curious. I mean, what were your biggest takeaways from this? And then I kind of follow up with it my own. Yeah, I know that stuff. Wow. It's deep. Um, there's this little, so LeBron had a very traumatic uh, young childhood and ended up living with his family. But Brian Winhorst reports that they kind of like put him into routines. They, they taught him that like the way to get ahead was to have like your room cleaned by a certain time and your homework done by a certain time and on and on and on. And he talks about that with just great reverence. And I have no doubt that this 
reverence for routines is exactly why he has become maybe the greatest athlete in the history of the world. Um, he puts in the work. Um, has also, and this is kind of well documented in the literature, including books that are on the shelves in front of me now. Um, you know, it, it makes you very rigid as a teammate, right? This is true away from sports too. So, in LeBron's view, the way to get ahead is to get to practice. Like uh, at one point, they told me a story about uh, when he was in Cleveland. Practice started at 11 a.m. He'd get there at 8:30, and he would just be putting in all this work. And then his teammates would come at 10:45, and he was fucking irate, and he would scream at them for being late. Because in LeBron's view, the way to get ahead is to get there at 8.30, right? And as you can see through the course of his career, he has not had a lot of young teammates, not had a lot of teammates go from like, you know, promising rookie to blossoming, right? He's tended to have, you know, like, he's going to Miami, then the young players got to, they all have to go, right? Ship their asses out. Yeah, there's no Michael Beasley on his team, right? Um, no Beasley, no Andrew Wiggins. No Andrew on Wiggins. And, and he's bringing, he's mostly played with these dudes who, you know, you know, Ray Allen was 112 years old by the time they played together. Uh, <laughs> Mike Miller. I mean, I remember, uh, and we were talking about refs earlier. There was a moment where, um, I'm trying to blank on which ref it was. Joey Crawford, in the middle of finals game, Mike Miller was involved in a kind of a bang-bang play, ends up, on his butt in the middle of the court and Joey Crawford runs over and weirdly, cause he's super aggressive at Joey Crawford, like pounds Mike Miller on the shoulder. But Mike Miller had like a very bad shoulder at that time. And you can see Mike Miller go like, ow. And like, I'm telling you that night I waited at my Mike Miller's locker for the whole entire available period. He never showed up. And I was like, sometime much <laughs> later, I was like, you were pretty pissed off by that Joey Crawford thing. Right. Like, But, uh, but yeah, so so LeBron's play with old, broken down guys who have his exact approach. They can't jump necessarily, but they show up early. They put in the work and just grind, grind, grind. And it gets you a certain kind of progress, but it means that, you know, Steph's played with crazy Draymond Green, who's Snapchatting himself, going through the tunnel at 112 miles an hour, or whatever, and, you know, in clubs at the wrong hours and blah, blah, blah. And like LeBron just doesn't put up with that kind of stuff, which is, you know, in a way, admirable to his credit. I think it helped him in the bubble. Um, but in a way, it means he's played with inferior teammates because he doesn't really like playing with, you know, young or kooky or undisciplined teammates. That's really yeah. interesting because so for me, <clears throat> um, my favorite player of all time is Michael Jordan. Like we talked about earlier, whatever they whatever they sold me in the 90s stuck and I, I just can't shake it. Um, I think LeBron has a case to be the best player of all time. He's got a very strong case and that case is growing because I don't, I, don't, I don't know when the guy's going to slow down. I think it's interesting, though, that you just brought that up. I never really thought about that from that perspective. And Jordan, for example, took in like a young Scottie Pippen and kind of groomed and raised him. And we never really, I guess, saw that with with LeBron, maybe Kyrie. Then he still pushed Kyrie out. I mean, that's the thing. He never got to see what the finished product of Kyrie could be and what they could even um, turn into together. I mean, that's that's what I'm getting. I mean, it, it's wild that I've never really thought about it as well, that he's actually capped himself uh, by not bringing in guys that are untapped from a potential standpoint uh, versus these guys that are, are finished products are on their last legs and they just have to fit his mold. But yeah, uh -oh. that's his biggest knock as a competitor all time to me is not being able to elevate his um, teammates and just, I mean, be able to play with a lot of different diverse teammates. I mean, I wouldn't say that Anthony Davis is on his last legs by any stretch. Uh, no, but he's, he's at his peak. I mean, Anthony Davis is, I mean, he's, he's been peak. peaked for a while. I mean, yeah, you know, he's, he's, he's enjoying the He's peak. in his prime, um, right? Yeah, exactly. I, 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 don't, I don't think, I just want to say, I don't think it's accurate to say that he gets old, like the, the number two and number threes on his team are not 
washed by any means. They're like right in their prime, right? You know, ready to win one, two, three, and then then they'll start declining. But but yeah, it's but with those teams, but his teams have traded away a lot of draft picks. If you go look, um, you know, very few incoming draft picks to his team. So it's not. I guess they're not all old, but they skew way older. Um, if you go do the math, and there's a lot of like, you know. Do we give up a ton for Antoine Jameson? Like nobody else would have given up that much from then, but like LeBron <laughs> has to have him and not, you know, the best available, uh, you know, guy you can get from the G league or whatever. Um, he just, he just hasn't had a lot of that. Um, oh, he paralyzes the future of all of his teams. I mean, Kyle Kuzma, I mean, he's a, the guy I, I watched during these finals, he went minutes without touching the ball, like minutes. Uh, he just doesn't, it's, you know, I think LeBron's, I, I think he is the best player ever. I think he's better than Jordan. Like, I totally admire the guy as an athlete. I just think he has a very narrow view of how you succeed. And that's hurt him a little, um, you know, which is nitpicking, you know, you know. but uh, Kyrie's the perfect example to me. There's a story, I, I dug up this old article, but like they were together for just a few months when, and this happened and it didn't make very big news, but um, LeBron's basically like, yeah, I'm changing the offense. Like I'm going to bring the ball up a lot more now. And they're like, did you talk to your coach about that? And he's like, I'm at the stage of my career where I don't have to. So what he's saying is Kyrie had the ball way too damn much. It's freaking me out. Right. Like, <laughs> and it was, you set your watch, but like, it was, you know, uh, whatever it was a year and whatever, however long later, Kyrie's asking for a trade, but um, you know, it's, you don't get to blossom. You don't get to explore the limits of your abilities next to LeBron. You get to go in there and make a few shots. And if you miss, you're sitting back down. I think that probably answers why we haven't seen LeBron and Chris Paul together. I feel like they, they would maybe legitimately clash on a basketball court. I remember before, before LeBron went to the Lakers, again, injecting some Rockets in here, a lot of Rockets fans thought, hey, you know what? LeBron might want to come ride it out, win some more titles, increase his legacy, play with his buddy in Houston. And the more that I think about it after you know this discussion and reading the pieces, I don't think that was ever on LeBron's radar. I, don't think, I, th- I think he looked at a situation with a Harden and just thought, no, you know, so interesting. <laughs> there are a lot of big voices in that franchise, right? There's a lot of Daryl Morey, a lot of Mike D'Antoni, whatever. Um, yeah. I think that uh, he's just, there were, there were, yeah, not anymore. <laughs> um, but yeah, Anthony Davis, you know, was well in the fold, right? He was in the clutch camp for a long time before he became his teammate. Right. I feel like they sort of, he has a lot of control over stuff because he, and you know, frankly, I think that Bay's let him down. I think he generally feels like, you know, his first seven years in Cleveland were a disaster, right? He like, he did his part, but the franchise did not, right. It's just this. Um, so I think That's he's like, no, he... I'm not going to trust a bunch of people on like, I'll have some GM is way smarter than me. Like Danny Ferry wasn't right. So I think like now it's like, no, he's going to do it. He's, he's going to manage all these things because people have been screwing it up. That's why he's been taking so much control when he realized he could he could do it. And crazy just watching the involve the evolvement of the player empowerment era and LeBron being at the forefront of it all. Uh, can you think of any players that have stuck around that LeBron really hasn't respected, like outside of Kyle Kuzma? Just interesting relationships. And so I guess the deal is what they what one guy told me was that basically every team he's been on, there's someone that LeBron yells at every day. So it was Mario Chalmers in Miami. You could see it on TV, right? Oh, no, it was wild. Um, I'm blanking on the name of the Cavs had like a very athletic kind of young power forward. JJ Hickson. There we go. There oh, we go. Oh, 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 yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. He apparently he yelled, apparently it was just like to people who were on the team in the room practice that they were like, it was uncomfortable. Like he would go hard at JJ Hickson and there have been others too, but um, 
you know, we saw like, like, you know, that, that J.R. Smith calling the, like thinking they were winning that game in the finals, like LeBron broke his hand that night. Right. Like, right. I mean, he, yeah, he does not like people screwing things up. I was going to say, it sounds like, uh, look, Mike, Michael Jordan got a lot of flack for how he, you know, seemingly treated his teammates in the last dance. And it seems like LeBron has a Scott Burrell wherever he goes. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. That's interesting. I mean, these are very, and I do respect this. Like, you know, we are looking at people who are better at what they do than anyone is at anything, right? Like it's more exclusive and difficult to enter the NBA than the Senate, right? Like these people are extremely accomplished in this and hardworking. And I can imagine that once you get there on this kind of extreme bleeding edge of accomplishment, it's very frustrating to have people not take it as seriously, right? Like, yeah, yeah, they're, they're like a super bummer, you know? That's, that's a reason there's levels to this. I mean, that's why we do have rankings and tiers and all of this, and we're able to do that because, I mean, yeah, a lot of these guys, it, they look at it just as a job, and they don't have to put in the 3 a.m. to right. 12 p.m. at night and after, after game shoot-arounds prove they're continuously working and – bad shooting performance in the finals and they got to get back out there and, and prove their worth. And yeah, I just don't think LeBron's ever related um, to the, I mean, yeah, he's good on social media and whatnot, but I think he's always done it because he's got people around him that do it for him. I think it's more so it, it's still, I think it drives him nuts and a, and a part of it that people are more about the life outside of this passion. I mean, that yeah. lives I mean, and breathes for the competitive drive, just to be clear, I'm not trying to knock him for it. I love it. Like that's what makes our, our, you know, that's what makes a Tom Brady, a Tom Brady. It's what made Michael Jordan a Michael Jordan. And he famously says that, right? Like it was his will to win. Um, and sometimes it's, it's what you might see as a Rockets fan, James Harden, for example, people might question whether he has that same tenacity and drive to win at all costs. So like, you don't, you don't get to that level. And, and especially LeBron, rarely, if ever, do you see someone with that much hype not only meet the hype, but exceed the hype and then sustain uh, that level of play for as long as he has. It's pretty insane. It might be the only player of any sport ever that I've ever seen do it. So pretty fascinating stuff. I mean, you don't get to be the greatest or you don't get to be in the conversation by coincidence, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think what I kind of took away from this thing was um, that sort of testosterone like gas in the tank like go kill him kind of fuel which makes a michael <laughs> jordan or a, or lebron james is very different from what makes you get the most out of people around you right like like being the greatest soldier is very different from being the greatest general right and being the greatest general means you know having a lot like all all of that game is about listening understanding how do i get the most out of you right and like michael jordan had no idea how to get the most out of kwame brown and ruined him right like like he it's just how many different kinds of people can you make into excellent teammates and i think this it's just not a very long list for jordan or lebron probably because they their engines run to 11 right and they're kind of like charge 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 which isn't the same as like so tell me about you any trouble at home like what's going on you guys ready to what's it gonna take for me to make you today right Like, like but that's what coaching and gming is like right and there's different styles of leadership you know um and I think that's what they, what they exemplify, you know, is like they lead by example, not that they don't know how to lead in other ways, but their primary avenue of leadership is by example. Um, and that's why, you know, anytime you hear about egos clashing, like there, there's a real element to that. You know, some people underrate 
what that means, but there's a real element to that. There's only one ball. That's, that's a real thing. Role players are called role players because they're expected to play their role and you have to figure out how to get them to, you know, like there's a whole lot of elements to the game um, that people underlook and don't, I, I don't think they make the attempt to empathize with what it would be, what it would feel like to be a LeBron James, for example. Oh yeah. It's weird. It's a very weird work environment and people get traded. I mean, think about this. Think about being at your job. It's just like, what happened to Timmy over there? It's like Timmy's family's packing right now. Cause you're heading to Tulsa. You have to live in a different city now. Like it's so weird. <laughs> you didn't, you didn't reach your words per minute this week. Yeah. You're uh, heading yeah. to Tulsa. <laughs> God damn it. The thing that drives me the most nuts though, is the fact that he just calls them out in press conferences. Um, and he's not, he's not the nicest teammate or the best teammate when it's behind the mic. And I I'm okay what he does in closed doors. And I mean, it's just when you're airing it out in public, that stuff should be staying in the locker room in my estimation. And that's always driven me the most nuts about him, but yeah, um, I mean, this is a, that's a sort of nice little proof of my theory. Like, you know, when he was back in Cleveland, he'd been in Miami where they're very militaristic, like, you know, his kind of approach of that rally style like work for him right but testing everybody's body fat and and so he comes back to cleveland he wants to bring that culture he wants everyone to be like super disciplined and the Cavs don't really have the infrastructure for it and um he's a little disappointed <laughs> and that ended up being the year where he had to go and um train in miami for a week in the middle of the year kind of like get back on track mentally but uh but in the middle of that his big social media breakdown was he's like sorry i'm just like i really like being punctual <laughs> it's like <laughs> Come on, man. <laughs> oh, man. Well, we don't want to bring any good rituals in here. We've ran a shit show for this long. And I mean, it's kind of like, it's kind of like when, um, you know, like, let's say you're, uh, you're dating somebody and you meet their family and your family's got these traditions for Christmas and their family's got these traditions for Christmas and there's a clash and you want to bring it up. You know, it's just like, how do you thread that needle? How do you get everyone on the yeah. same page? You know? But I, hey, think, Steve, I really admire Steve Kerr. Like Steve Kerr to me is the one who's like, yeah, you know, like, you know, Draymond's a handful and we love him. <laughs> right. Like they get amazing. I mean, that guy, uh, no one expects him to be anything like as good. He has overperformed by a factor of 10,000. Right. Um, because they kind of let Draymond be Draymond a little bit. Right. And I think there's, you know, there's, there, there's a time to, you know, draw a line and they definitely had their battles. And I think the police were some of the locker room in Oklahoma city for one of them. But, uh, but I think like, uh, there's an art to getting the most out of lots of different kinds of people. And, um, you know, tweeting that you want everyone to be punctual. Isn't it right? That's not, (laughs) nobody brings their a game the next day after that. Right. Like that's just LeBron's persnickety. He he is. It's okay. Yeah. Personality management's interesting, man. Like, um, you know, it's everything in the NBA now. Yeah, I mean, Kerr comes from the Popovich tree line, you know, he comes from the Phil Jackson tree line, and like, what what were those guys known for, or specifically Phil Jackson, right? We talk about MJ's mentality, well, the reason that it all worked is because Phil Jackson was able to push the right buttons, you know, do the right things, their meditation sessions, all that kind of stuff, and Steve Kerr was able to get get that out of Golden State. Um, I think Greg Popovich instilled a culture that really worked for the big three when they were there in San Antonio. Like, we hear about culture, why are people leaving Houston, you know, culture, um, so I think all that stuff matters and it's interesting cause you got LeBron who is LeBron James, right? One of the biggest figures period in the world. So when you're the coach, when you're the GM, 
you know, how do you manage like that ego? Cause you're kind of in LeBron's shadow, you know, but it's worked for him. So it's hard to criticize, I guess. Yeah. I, I think that honestly, all, all of us are imperfect. Right. And like, and when you're as good as LeBron, you can do 78% of things amazingly well. And, and he's just bad at some stuff, right? Like he just, this is not a forte of his and it's okay. He's good enough that he can overcome that with, I mean, honestly, he literally overcomes it by just doing everything himself, right? Like, and now, you know, he doesn't ever say a bad thing about Dwayne Wade. And like when, you know, he didn't ever put him on blast in the media or whatever, he and Dwayne had a like perfectly aligned media strategy, always all love. And that seems like, seems like Anthony, Davis. you know, LeBron led the league in assists, just giving the ball to Anthony Davis all year, right? Like over troop, you know, David Thorpe um, hatched the theory. I think it was a good one that LeBron was trying to get Anthony Davis an MVP, because if he wins the MVP, he has to resign with the Lakers, right? Like, um, <laughs> instead, he got him a championship. Um, very nice. But, uh, but I think that this work. is the, I think he's like, Anthony Davis has earned his place into the core of LeBron's heart. And once you're there, I think you're good. But, uh, but I don't think J.R. Smith is going to be back. Henry, I wanted to touch one last thing before we get you out of here. I forgot sure. to mention earlier. So I'm going to slap this in at the end. Um, I read a piece of yours regarding a gentleman who has recently come under a lot of heat for how he operates his culture within his business and um, just things of that nature. I guess his name is Bill Simmons. And mm. I was wondering, um, I thought the piece was interesting. And I was just wondering if, you know, you can maybe elaborate or, or, you know, talk or discuss at all about, you know, where that came from, what that was, what that is. That was similar to the Davis Stern story where like, I didn't think I was going to talk about Bill Simmons. Um, mostly because journalism is boring. Um, but I did work with him for a long time. And there was a week he was trending on Twitter for some reason. I don't even remember now. Oh, because I uh, now I remember. There was a New York Times story where he said it wasn't like, um, people asked him why his podcasting empire wasn't more diverse than he, his emailed response included saying it wasn't open mic night. What, who would say that? Um, right, 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 right. Who would say that? Yeah. Um, and it is open mic night. He's got, he's got some random, some he's random got his cousin, there. he's got his nephew. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that's yeah. what fired me up. So then, so then, okay. Um, I think there was a big misunderstanding with that story, to be honest. Like I ended up quoting um, another story about him, said that basically they thought he was some kind of racist. And, you know, as they described, I actually felt like, you know, in my world, people either love Bill Simmons and think he's like a, a sort of the savior of the future of journalism, sports journalism, or over here is, was cranking up the camp that he was like the devil, basically. And I was saying, hey, I, my experience of Bill is neither of those things. My experience of Bill is that he's kind of petulant. He's, he's, the, he's a guy who gets upset when he doesn't get his way, and he's very good at getting his way. And to me, his key skill, um, you know, and a friend of mine pointed out that he always felt like it was, you know, well captured by the phrase that he was an only child. That also helps a lot of people because only children really hated how I used the term in that story. And I feel bad about it. Hey, that. I mean, <laughs> but uh, I, I don't mean that to say that only children are all a certain way. But I mean to say that if you call someone saying he's acting like an only child, like I'm activating a stereotype here. Yeah, which, like, stereotypes are there for a reason. I mean, yeah. So, usually above 50%, right? <laughs> so he just didn't share very well. Um, so anyway, I, I don't like, you know, I got no hate in my heart for the guy. And if I saw him tomorrow, I'm sure we'd be cordial. Maybe he wants to kill me now. I don't know. But, um, but, uh, but yeah, I felt like uh, he excelled in creating a situation in ESPN where he got to 
just to spend all the money. And that was actually, you know, that, that was kind of hurtful to people I loved, right? Like there were a lot of, you know, like if you wanted to get a, a job uh, doing something interesting in MBA digital media at ESPN for several years there, like you basically had to catch Bill's eye because, uh, you know, I was telling you about this team earlier where we shot out all the traffic records and did all this amazing stuff, but like we didn't get to grow because all the jobs went to, went to Grantland. <laughs> you know, like, um, so yeah, that makes sense. A common thought is that I'm just jealous here. And I guess that's kind of it. But it's also like, I'm a little bummed that, you know, we were the, had to be the Sacramento Kings just because like they weren't killing it over there. <laughs> like, <laughs> they did a lot of amazing work, a ton of amazing work. And a, a lot of like, okay, here's a little, here's a little Henry's jealous story. Like there was a period there where I read every single NBA blog every single day um, with my RSS reader and I'd do the true bullets. And this new one popped up called Introducing Liston. And I didn't know anything about it. There was no real name on it, but I knew that it was like delightful to read. It was absolutely unlike anything I'd read before and just special. And so I just sent an email and we emailed back and forth a bit. And then it turned out it was a fake name. And the guy was like a school teacher in Houston. And I started just celebrating his work on TrueHoop on ESPN.com all the time. And I had him on Troop TV when it became a thing that existed. Um, his name's Shay Serrano, and love us. Shay is my guy. I know Shay in He's, real life. Um, he Shay, I Henry for full disclosure. Again, I used to rap. Uh, had a, a rap career. Shay was the first guy that yeah. ever in, introduced. I'm sorry, ever interviewed me. So I have a lot of love for Shay Serrano. Please continue. He's like the greatest human on the planet, right? He's incredible. And, and you know, and he was like literally nobody. Like his next freelance job was at something in Houston called like Near Northwest Banner or something. Was this first person who paid him to write she learned about it from true hoop right so i go way back with shay we've had tacos with shay like shay and i would talk about parenting and his, his sons he has twin boys who used to joust on their bicycles which was like <laughs> that made me feel a lot more comfortable as a parent right like but <laughs> like in this in the internal communications of espn like like bill gets to hire 10 shays like i would love to work with shay right like like why can't i work with shay <laughs> like but, and you know, I had even whatever, don't get me started on Shay. But there are other stories like this where um it just was a little it just was a little creepy for a while there where there was a lot of Simmons worship going on. And I think he's good at what he does. Um I wish him the best. And I'm a little bummed that he's so dominated um how NBA digital media evolved for a while there because I feel like um we could have done some serious damage with some of the resources that went to him. Hey, Henry, you don't have to tell us, man. I mean, anybody that was paying attention knows ESPN allocated their resources in the wrong places for a while. And it was pretty disgusting, some of the layoffs. I mean, of their best, I mean, most detailed work. And it just seemed like they were going to the clickbait. And I mean, yeah, that's what drove them money. But at the end of the day, a lot of times it didn't. I mean, there's a lot, a lot of context that goes with it. I mean, they they treated the user like a bunch of idiots in my estimation. Um, and I, I'm a guy that likes the more in-depth detailed stories. And that's why I got you, you and Baxter Holmes and likes like that coming on my show. Um, wait, when you say they treated you like idiot, tell me more. What do you mean? I just feel like they looking for just the highlight reels, you know, and just the stuff that it's just like a lot of the NBA fans today are idiots in my estimation, because they, I mean, they don't watch the games. They <laughs> straight up just go scroll across Twitter. Or they bring up the box score and they say, this guy's good because he does this one thing. And 
Um, it's just points per game and whatever you name it, just little stuff like that. I mean, just highlight, highlight reels and, um, not in depth and intelligent, educated stuff that they're putting out anymore. And that's the type of people they laid off at ESPN. I'm not trying to, um, offend anybody that they kept on there cause they did keep some good people, but they just let a lot of the really educated and intelligent ones leave in my estimation. I'll tell you, I mean, I, I, the thing that I definitely saw happening, which I think is real and um, part of what you're feeling is, um, you know, it, as a cable company, it was one of the best moneymakers in the history of all media. And that was the play. And that was the definition of what the company did. And everything else was secondary to that, right? So one example of this is like a Baxter Holmes writes the greatest story of all time. Um, and it, it's ready to go on a certain day it is not likely to lead page one if there's a football game on ESPN that night. So like the website was programmed to just to drive more viewership of the cable channel. And that's just what it is. Right. Um, what would it have been like if you organized it the other way, right? If, what if ESPN were pivoting to digital, like every other media company, then you'd want original digital stuff that killed it. Right. And I think that there was a, if you look at who's come and gone, I think that, um, a lot of it fits the rubric of uh, we need to be cable first. And so, for instance, like John Hollinger, brilliant guy who could you know, lead the website with stuff that sold subscriptions and got traffic, but not a TV guy, right? right. Like he's not going to be on the jump. Um, and uh, I feel like they kind of, you know, who could be on SportsCenter, who could be on the jump, et cetera, became the definition of who they wanted to invest in, which is, you know, makes sense, but I think it doesn't set them up well for the digital first future, right? They're going to be cable to the, to the last. And I know the athletic took away a lot of those people. I mean, that's, I mean, that seemed like that was their target based. And, um, as far as I know, the athletic started off really hot. I don't know. I haven't checked like any financial reports or anything now. I mean, is the athletic thriving yet? Do we know this or? So they have a model, like a venture-backed model, where they just want to grow really, really fast, and you don't really right. care about profitability. So um, in that thing, they've they've reached a lot of subscribers, right? Um, you know, it's uh, I think it's hard in this business to scale like that, and then you know, from the data I've seen, beat writers in most markets won't make you money. Doesn't give me any joy to say that, but it's just the truth, right? Like. Whether you're using ads or subscriptions, like, you know, you're going to sell, you know, five, you're going to, there's some stories like a Mavericks game story. Some of the times would have like uh, a hundredth of a regular story on ESPN.com. So to the extent the athletics bet on beat writers, I feel like they're never going to make that money back is my guess. Like, I mean, this is why we had to reinvent everything to make like these true present stories, right? It was like, what can we do that's very popular, right? And I think that they have a lot of great people there. And uh, they'll probably figure it out. But I think that a lot of the idea that they're just going to like follow a team and have team by team local city coverage, it's been disproven a bunch of times now. Yeah, I mean, to, to that effect, I was going to say, um, I think I, and I'm just, this is just, you know, something I've heard. So I'm not verifying this, but I think like a Lakers beat reporter will get maybe, you know, 30 something thousand. Um, and that's just not even sustainable to live in the city of Los Angeles, right? So, you know, but, and then on, on top of that, um, I always, I frequently actually see, and I have an athletic subscription, but I frequent, I frequently see, uh, you know, just wild discounts, right? $1 a month, $2 a month. And so that always signals to me that there's some type of issue. They're, they're, 
they're trying to make some type of push or some type of special, you know, they always got a special sale, right? If you always have a special sale, my guess would be businesses hurting in some capacity. Um, but yeah, continue. Sorry. No, I just, I venture capital investors want you to be monopolies. Basically they don't use that word, but like, so also I think behind the $1 sale is they just want all the other subscription businesses to, to go away. Right. So they'll like Uber, um, is operating at a loss because it wants to make sure that Lyft isn't around for the long haul. Right. And not, you know, so like, I think there's always going to be this kind of like, how do you become the next Amazon? The answer is like long-term systematically eliminate all the competition. Right. And, um, so I think that's, that's the game most likely, but, um, but yeah, I think it's, it's tough, man. Like, I, I don't think you're going to have enough, like I'm a Blazers fan. I don't think you get enough Blazers fans to pay like the full-time salary of staff covering and traveling with the Blazers. Right. I think that's just, that's not how it works. Especially because now there's just so many, you know, there's guys like us that pop up on the internet just talking about basketball. You know, there's just so many different avenues and areas to get your information from. I feel like putting things behind a paywall just inherently is difficult. Um, and I, I, I interned at Twitter three years ago, and they operate at a loss to my, to my understanding. Um, but when you look around the building, you would never be able to, to tell that. So it's kind of a wild right. little conundrum. So you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. Henry, thank you so much. For your time, uh, I thought this was a fascinating conversation. It's one of the one of the favorite episodes that I've done personally, in my in my own opinion. So thank you. Um, we appreciate your work, and we'll be tuning in to, to True Hoop. No, thank you so much. And Rush, I I have one regret, which is uh, you were in the rap game, and we didn't get you to give us a little something, like a little. Come on, like a little. Come okay. on. Okay. Oh, okay. If, close it all if, like that. Let's if that's it. what you like, let me. Um, since you're putting me on the spot, let me just pull up something that I can. Well, well, he's working that up. Henry, I need a closing Blazers seasons prediction. Give me a Blazers seasons prediction. Oh, I am trying so hard not to get I, excited. <laughs> I'm, I'm extremely excited for the Blazers. I love the fact that they stole Robert Covington, the guy that they've needed for, I don't know, as long as Dame's been there since Brandon Roy, Nick Batum left. And um, Rip City deserves a real contender. I think they're really close if Gary Trent keeps getting better too. I totally agree. I agree with everything you just said. So I don't know if that makes them like, you know, I think they're making the playoffs maybe fourth, fifth, something like that. And then we'll see what happens. Okay. I got, I got all the time for this. Yeah, this is I'll, done. I'll, I'll, I'll do an old one. This is from, okay. I did a song with Bubba Sparks, if you remember him in uh, 2013. Okay. First things first. And this is very explicit. So excuse me, but this is who I was uh, seven years ago. <laughs> First things first, pussy motherfuckers better hold their purse. If you ain't on my team, please step to the side. I will not be present when they roll in your hearse. Shout one time for the real motherfuckers that'll speak their mind when they do see fit. Stand up cats, no seats in the villain. If you think you the villain and you finger on the trigger when the Uzi hit, you're going to recover a wheel. You be split down on both knees, sucking on it really similar to a groupie. I'm still in the game, been drilling my name. Fate goes both ways, treat the same. And I don't give a shit if she's going to be giving me brain because it ain't going to be different after we biggity bang. You feeling me, man? I'm telling you, I seen it, I done it, I mean it, I want it. I'm feeling undefeated. I'm hunting these fraudulent motherfuckers because they're thinking they're something. I need to be coming up in the ring to beat them and cuff them. I'm like, whoa. That's a little taste of what I can do. You put me That's on the That's like spot. LeBron talking to JJ Hickson. Motherfucker, <laughs> 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 out. Hey, if you ever, uh, I, you put me on the spot, but if you ever need anything, related, man, I'm here for you. Let me know. Um, I super yeah. appreciate that on yeah, the spot. No doubt, I appreciate man. it. That's great. No there doubt, we go. We, we I'm glad you enjoyed First time we got Roosh to spit on, on, on a show. Henry, we appreciate you. Keep right, putting out great content, man. And we're looking forward to following. <laughs> <laughs>